It's Thursday, August 19th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. COVID booster shots are coming this fall. The Biden administration has called for boosters to be available for those that are fully vaccinated with Pfizer or Moderna eight months after their second shot. With the Delta variant, the coronavirus is still too widespread and too transmissible, and the outcome of the pandemic seems pretty certain. The virus is not going away and will be endemic. Sarah Zhang, staff writer at The Atlantic, joins us for how we are going to have to live with the coronavirus. Next, older millennials are beginning to enter their high earning years, but for many, it doesn't feel like it. With a higher debt to income ratio and delaying home ownership and having a family, these higher earning years might not provide the financial security they were hoping for. Julia Carpenter, personal finance reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how millennials are still struggling despite making more. Finally, some hotels are going the way of the airline industry and offering a la carte pricing for certain services and amenities. Early check-in, access to the pool, gym use, or even daily housekeeping could be offered as add-ons in exchange for a lower room rate. Big hotel chains are still wary of such a change, but the fourth largest hotel owner is trying out the new business model. Craig Carmen, real estate bureau chief at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for a change-up in hotel fees. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Pending approval from the Food and Drug Administration, the CDC's Committee of Outside Experts will be ready to start these booster, this booster program during the week of September 20. Joining us now is Sarah Zhang, staff writer at The Atlantic. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Hi, thanks for having me. Wanted to talk about some of the latest coronavirus news. The Biden administration has called for a third COVID booster shot starting in the fall for adults who got the either the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine. So we're looking at these shots being administered eight months after you got your second dose. This is for ages 18 and older. So they want to start this around the week of September 20th. And we've seen a lot of data showing that the effectiveness of the vaccines have kind of worn off a little bit when it comes to the Delta variant. It still protects very well against hospitalization, severe disease and death, but the Delta variant just kind of threw everything for a loop. So what are we seeing in this, Sarah? That's exactly right. You know, as you say, the vaccines still protect really well against hospitalizations and death, but it is pretty clear that the vaccine is not effective right now against Delta as it was when we're seeing in the clinical trials. So the rationale that is coming from the Biden administration is that we want to boost people back up to kind of a level where we feel more confident in it. I think the other fear is that, you know, maybe it's still protecting really well against serious disease now, but where is this going to look maybe another six months or eight months from now? You know, I think like in the U.S., we certainly have the shots. In fact, we have more shots than people are willing to take them right now. But I think that's actually maybe one of the other kind of bigger picture thing to see here is that a third shot will undoubtedly help boost up the immunity of people who take it. But the first shot for someone who has not been vaccinated is going to make much, much bigger of a difference. So should we be focusing their efforts on getting first shot to more people? And I think the other big picture question is the rest of the world. So much of the world still does not have enough access to vaccines to vaccinate everyone even once. So this is really, in some ways, reflecting how we in the U.S. are very lucky to be awash in vaccines. It would certainly help, but is it maybe the best use of a single dose of vaccine? Probably not. Sarah, about a year ago, you wrote an article talking about how the coronavirus is probably never going to go away. It will become something that we call endemic, something that we end up living with. You wrote a follow-up article to this, kind of how everything we've gone through 
basically confirms this almost to this point now. Things have not gotten much better, and we're still there. And, and we hope that through natural immunity, through vaccinations, the coronavirus just kind of becomes more of a common cold thing, like other coronaviruses have done in the past. Yeah, that's right. The coronavirus is still never going away. I think that's even more clear or clearer now than it was a year ago. So I think the reason I would say that seems, you know, even more unavoidable now is because the virus has just spread so through so much of the world. And we're also seeing how it is changing, right? Like we're seeing these new variants and with Delta, there's like some better ability to slightly better ability to reinfect or to cause breakthrough infections in people who are vaccinated, which is, as we were talking about, one reason the Biden administration is pushing for boosters. I think we're going through like a very confusing period where things are very in flux. I wanted to kind of think about what the long term is of like what living with this virus is like. And I don't think that like currently confusing period is going to last forever, at least. Eventually, we'll kind of settle down to some sort of more stable, steady state where the virus kind of follows a more predictable pattern, very likely or possibly a seasonal pattern to see with the way we see with the flu or with other coronaviruses. There are four other coronaviruses that cause a common cold. And we don't know if this coronavirus is going to behave exactly like the ones that already exist. But we have kind of just as like a one possible benchmark for how it might look in the long term. With the common cold coronaviruses, we sort of all get them when we're a kid. We probably exposed to them like before we were two or three years old. And then we always get reinfected. Immunity to coronaviruses does not last very long. But what happens is because we always get it as a kid, it's pretty mild. As we're seeing with COVID-19, when kids get it, it tends to be really mild and asymptomatic. So what tends to happen with other coronaviruses is that um, we get it as a kid, we get reinfected, but that's also mild because our bodies have seen it before. Maybe the virus changes a little bit, maybe your immunity also wanes, we might get reinfected again. That kind of boosts back the immunity back up for a while, and then maybe after some time you might get reinfected again. But each time these reinfections, you're not starting from zero. So it's going to be milder right. than if you saw it for the first time. And if you are vaccinated or it's happening in children, that's not as serious as what's happening now with COVID-19. The problem with COVID-19 is that we're seeing novel coronavirus in adults who have never seen this virus before. And that's what is causing all the serious illness right. and the death. The other component to it, as you mentioned in the article too, is the psychological transition. You know, once this does become endemic, something that we live with, we're going to have to think about it differently as a way that we live for it. You know, we've been in this inflection point right now where so many people are on so many sides. We're not in agreement on what it's going to look like later, but eventually we'll kind of get there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think one thing that's going to just feel a little bit strange at first when we come out of this pandemic is that, you know, in this middle of this pandemic or in this emergency, we're all trying to avoid this virus. But in the long run, as this virus becomes endemic, as it continues to circulate, we've seen how transmissible it is now. Like, it's very unlikely that all of us or even most of us can avoid this virus for the rest of our lives. So we should prepare to be exposed to it at some point. And that's fine, right? If you've been vaccinated, if you've had immunity to this virus, like reinfection is not going to be as bad as like an initial first infection in say an elderly adult who's like never seen the virus before. And that's just probably how it's going to be over time. Sarah Zhang, staff writer at The Atlantic. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. We owe a lot of this to the student debt crisis, of course, but also millennials were very much impacted by both recessions, the Great Recession of 2008, as well as the post-pandemic-induced recession. Joining us now is Julia Carpenter, personal finance reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Julia. Thank you for having me. 
we have another story about millennials. Right now, the oldest millennials are getting into their uh, prime money-making years, their high-earning years. But uh, as we've seen with a lot of stories about millennials, you know, it doesn't always feel that way that they'll be <laughs> that, they, that they're going to be earning their due. Really, uh, they've gone through two recessions. The pandemic obviously has impacted a lot of people. But what happens with a lot of millennials right now is they have a really high debt to income ratio. They owe a lot of money. And as I mentioned, as you get older, you start taking on other things, mortgages, children, all that other stuff. So, Julia, help us walk through some of this. What are we seeing with our millennials right now? Yeah, so you already mentioned some of it, thinking about how millennials were entering this period of their life with some different obligations, different than previous generations. They're carrying a debt-to-income ratio that's 23% higher than previous generations or 23% higher than expected based on previous generations. We owe a lot of this to the student debt crisis, of course, but also millennials were very much impacted by both recessions, the Great Recession of 2008, as well as the post-pandemic-induced recession. So even though we're seeing really strong wage growth coming out of this pandemic or really strong labor market, millennials entering this high-earning year period are still trying to catch up from those previous hindrances. What's the age range that we're looking at for these high earning years? High earning years typically fall between 35 to 44 or 45 to 54. But we see the biggest jump in income when somebody moves from the 25 to 34 bracket to the 35 to 44 bracket. And that's usually because education starts to pay off, advanced degrees start to pay off, or people get promotions. They move into senior levels at their company. They've kind of chosen their industry. They're in a career that maybe a career change had benefited from. They're sort of hitting their stride. You had a couple statistics in 1986, the weekly earnings jumped 16% for people moving into that bracket. We have some numbers for Gen X and then even for 2020. So what are the gains looking like? Yeah, I mean, when you move from that 25 to 34 age bracket to the 35 to 44 bracket, it's usually a pretty significant jump. You're seeing a 20% jump, like I said, 16% in 1986. 20% 20% for Gen X in 2005, 22% in 2020. And then what happens is you start making more money and then you will tip up a little bit more again into those high earning years in the 30s and 40s. And then you sort of plateau and decrease as you're entering retirement. Cost of childcare you focused on in the piece. I mean, that's huge for so many families. I think someone said it's like taking on another mortgage in some cases. Childcare and nursery school are rising at roughly twice the pace of inflation. And that's been happening since 2000. So it's these really high prices people are paying for childcare and nursery school. So that's eating into those wage increases. You know, the woman I spoke with who you mentioned, you know, she referred to it as a mortgage payment. She crossed a personal income threshold. She felt really good about it. But then pretty much all of that extra pay went to childcare for her first child. And then her second raise, it went to childcare for her second child. So we're seeing more and more of these bigger ticket items eating into those wage increases. And purchasing power is also the same as it it was 40 years ago. And in some ways, people look at that and say, oh, that's great. Our purchasing power for our salaries hasn't decreased. But also our purchasing for power for our salaries hasn't increased either. So it puts these older millennials entering this period in really a tough spot. Stress was another thing that you focused on in the piece. And, you know, I couldn't get, uh, keep thinking, you know, more money, more problems, right? You're making that more money, but things keep changing. And uh, one of the people you spoke to too said that, yeah, you're, you're making higher, more money, but you're might be working longer hours. There's more stress associated with it. There's a bunch of surveys of millennials saying that financial stress is really high and figures in their daily lives. 
I think a lot of that we've discussed with the pandemic, you know, this sort of never-ending dread, this drawn-out trauma, burnout, and these older millennials are really feeling the effects of all of that. They're also in sort of a weird period in their careers. Baby boomers are living longer and they're also working longer. So that has cascading effects. That means baby boomers working in senior positions aren't retiring, which means Gen X isn't advancing, which means millennials aren't advancing to those other positions. So it's a weird period of time in which they're stalled in their careers. They're entering this very high earning period or supposedly this high earning period feeling more of their money being eaten up by these daily necessities and also kind of trying to plan for the future at the same time. You mentioned the article, too. There's plenty of job openings right now, but some of these senior positions, as you mentioned, need to be vacated so that the older millennials can start moving up into that. And there is a lot of job openings right now, but a lot of people don't want some of those jobs because it might be a lateral move or a move beneath them, let's say. So that kind of figures into a lot of that as well. When you look at the data in the third quarter of 2020, about 28.6, nearly 30 million baby boomers said that they were out of the workforce because of retirement. So on its face, that number looks huge and and it's increased. It's increased. You know, that's almost 30 million baby boomers. But then when you look at labor force participation, labor force participation for workers over 60 has increased. So people are working longer. We already know millennials have said that they plan to work longer, both because millennials are looking for meaning in their jobs, as many have reported, but also because they feel like they're going to need to work longer in order to make it work financially. Julia Carpenter, personal finance reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Any amenity or service is available to a customer, but at a price. So you would get a reduced room rate and basically no frills room. If you wanted, as you said, the pool, use of the gym, a late checkout, breakfast, those would all be additional costs. Joining us now is Craig Carmen, real estate bureau chief at the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Craig. Thank you for having me today. I want to talk about an interesting uh, development with hotels right now. Obviously, they're still recovering from the pandemic closures, you know, travel, leisure travel was down, but some of them are experimenting with this a la carte pricing for certain services and amenities. And in return, they're cutting the rates for the room, which is pretty good. So think of, uh, you know, I want to get early check-in. Sure, you can get early check-in. It'll cost you 20 bucks. You want to use the pool on, uh, you know, on a peak weekend day. It's going to cost you 25 bucks, something like that. So a lot of uh, a big major hotel chain is uh, starting to experiment with some of this. So, Craig, help us walk through some of it. What are we looking at? And first of all, just to clarify, the big chains themselves are actually a little a little bit skeptical of this pricing system right now. It's more owners who are experimenting with it. And for your listeners who may not be aware, the way most hotels work is they have an owner who owns the property and then a brand like a Marriott or a Hilton, which franchises the property, puts it in their booking system, maybe manages the property, or maybe there's a third party who manages it. But in this case, it's really some of the owners who've decided that because of the pandemic, because of the Delta variant coming back and slowing this sort of budding comeback in travel, because of the extra costs they put in to sanitize their hotels and make them pandemic proof, they need to find new sources of revenue. And one idea that has been kicked around for a while, but few people have acted on, is this a la carte pricing system you talked about, somewhat similar to the airlines, where any amenity or service is available to a customer, but at a price. So you would get a reduced room rate and basically no frills room. 
if you wanted, as you said, the pool, use of the gym, a late checkout, breakfast, those would all be additional costs. And what they're hoping is guests would find sort of a happy medium. Those guests who didn't want to go swimming or didn't want to work out would prefer to have a cheaper room rate. And those who wanted to use all those amenities could go ahead and spend the money on them. How do they feel that the uptake will be with customers? You know, as you mentioned in the article, a lot of these things are always very, very slow to develop. One of the owners told me, you know, not every guest wants every product and they don't want to pay for something they're never going to use anyway. On the other hand, and I got a lot of uh, notes from readers on this story, people don't like to pay for things that they're used to getting free of charge. And I think the burden is on the hotel owners to show that, in fact, there is a potential for savings for the guests, that they are getting a lower room rate. It's a little complicated to show because, as far as I know, the owners are not doing, here's the no-fills room with no amenities, and here's the price of the room with all the amenities. It's more that they're lowering the price so that when you're searching for it on an online travel site or going on their website, you'll notice that the price is cheaper than some of their competitors. And since most travelers, at least most leisure travelers, tend to book primarily on price, that that, that hotel will stick out in your eye. For now, it seems like I think it's going to be a bit of a, a bit of an uphill climb because they do have to convince guests that this is something in which they can come out ahead and, and, and they shouldn't feel nickel and dime, but they'll actually come out saving. When the airlines tried this, they basically imposed it across the board. And even if people didn't like it, they sort of became resigned to it because they didn't have much choice. In the hotel world, there's tens of thousands of hotels out there. And if some people are charging and other people are not, the burden is on those who are going to charge additional fees to really impress upon guests that they're able to save money in the long run by, by getting only what they, what they want to have at these hotels. Yeah, you kind of need that wide adoption so that it forces everybody into it. And the hotel industry has kind of dabbled with this before. You mentioned in your article, too. And I remember a, a time, you know, where initially a lot of places charged for Wi-Fi usage. Right now, they might be charging extra for higher speed service. And one of the things that I have noticed is housekeeping. A lot of times they tell you right away, housekeeping isn't coming unless you specifically request it. Some hotel owners are even now experimenting with saying, well, you can get housekeeping every day, but there's going to be a $5 fee. Someone was telling me he was thinking of actually refunding guests for nights that they don't, they don't request housekeeping. But the industry has tried this in another way, which I did mention in the story, but through something they call a, a resort fee, or I think in, sometimes in city hotels where they can't call themselves a resort, they call it a destination amenity fee. And that's usually a charge of about 25 to $50, sometimes more, that the hotel will charge per night for use of all these amenities, the pool, the gym, and so on. Now, in this case, it's something that's just attached to the bill, whether the guest wants it or not. Sometimes the hotel will reverse the charge if the guest complains, but not always. And these fees have been very unpopular with guests. And I think the owners are feeling, well, if we're doing an a la carte pricing, at least we're being transparent about it, and the guest knows what they're being charged for. Craig Carmen, Real Estate Bureau Chief at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.